Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Helen Fishburne and Robert Eilers. Fishburne is the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo and Wellington, and Eilers is the president and director of the Vistera Group of Companies. What brings the leader of the region's biggest mental health services provider and an accomplished real estate developer onto the same podcast, you may be asking? Well, in this case, it's about the groundbreaking of the Center for Children's Mental Health and Development Services building, which will come to be known in the future as The Grove. When it opens in 2023, The Grove will offer 30 services across three floors, helping 9,000 local children, youth, and their families needing mental health and development services support and treatment each year, courtesy of a unique and generous partnership. Building mental health services is the topic of this episode of the Guelph Politicast. Now, we have talked before on this podcast about the Integrated Youth Services Network concept, but that was when it was in its embryonic planning phase almost two years ago now. To recap, the idea behind this facility is to create a safe space for youth aged 12 to 26 and offer a one-stop shop service hub to address the mental health community and social services needs of young people. The Guelph Community Foundation, Big Brothers and Big Sisters of Center Wellington, the University of Guelph, the YMCA of Three Rivers, and the Sheldale Family Gateway are among the partners involved bringing this hub to life. And there are already three smaller hubs in business across Wellington County in Erin, Fergus, and Palmerston. Last week, the Grove took its biggest leap forward yet when the ground was broken at the site of the old McDonald's on Woolwich Street, where it will be built. Representatives from all three levels of government were on hand, including the Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions himself, Michael Tibolo. So, you know this was a pretty big deal. Aside from the advancement in the cause of mental health, though, it was a notable occasion because of Eilers, whose company is not only building Grove, but will own the facility as well, which would constitute a $50 million donation to the project, which is, as noted, the largest private donation to mental health services in Canadian history. What started as a curiosity among members of the Rotary Club of Guelph will now become a reality after years of organization and advocacy. And this week, we will talk to the two biggest players now that they are so close to the end, or perhaps we should say so close to the beginning. Helen Fishburne and Robert Eilers are the guests on this week's Guelph Politicast, and they will each talk about the project from their own unique perspectives. Fishburne will discuss how we are now entering the mental health surge of the pandemic, how the new building will improve the local delivery of mental health services, and whether we're on the brink of incorporating mental health into the total health picture and are no longer holding it separately. Eilers will talk about how the pandemic has inflated the cost of building and construction, what inspired him to be so philanthropic, and he shares his very personal story about his own struggles with mental health as a young person and how he got the help he needed to become the successful business person that he is today. Now, before we begin, just a word of caution that some of the things we'll be talking about could be triggering to people who are uh, working through their own mental health issues. So listener discretion is advised, just so you know. So I caught up with Helen Fishburne and Robert Eilers earlier this week via Zoom. I'm now being joined by Helen Fishburne. Hi, Helen. Hi, Adam. And I'm also being joined by Robert Eilers. Hi, Robert. Hello, Adam. Uh, well, thank you both for joining me today. And uh, I'm going to start with you, Helen. Um, can you talk a bit about, just to set up, this big three-story building that's going to be going up on Woolwich Street over the next couple of years um, when it's open and we have the big ribbon cutting in, in 2023. Um, what all is what, what all will we find when we go in, assuming we can like go physically inside places again as a big group? <laughs> yeah, we're certainly hopeful for that. Yeah, we're uh, super excited to break ground on this new building, uh, which will better serve children, youth, and their families in Guelph and Wellington. It's been a two and a half year uh, passion project uh, for Robert and I and our project management team. 
uh, when you uh, when we break when we open those doors, um, it uh, about fifty two thousand square feet of the building will belong to CMHA, and those are mental health services for birth to eighteen children and youth and their families, um, and it's a wide range of services we have. Um, infant mental health programs, infant development programs. We have group programs for youth and children struggling with really complex mental health and addiction issues. We have team-based care that includes child psychiatry, occupational therapists, crisis, coordinator, crisis coordinators. We have outreach uh, for youth uh, that are struggling on the streets. Um, basically, it is everything you need uh, to support kids and youth with really complex mental health issues. Also in the building, we will be welcoming our partners through the Youth Wellness Hub, which is about 8,000 square feet in the building on the main floor. And that uh, new Youth Wellness Hub is called The Grove, which was, they've just announced their new brand last week when we did the groundbreaking, which is a name that was actually uh, created by uh, the youth who will be using uh, the uh, space. And in the Grove, you're going to find 30 service providers who are going to provide a range of options for youth to help them with whatever they're managing in life. It might be they need help writing a resume. They might need help sorting through a conflict they're having with their parents or their girlfriend. They don't know what the next step is on their career. They are overwhelmed with anxiety and worry any of that and all of that. And we make it incredibly easy through our beautiful new building, both on the CMHA side, as well as the Youth Wellness Hub. It's a one-stop shop for kids and youth to get what they need. Okay. So Robert, I'm gonna to direct to you a question about, um, I, I guess, creating a building like this and, and you've, you, through your company, you've done a lot of buildings around Guelph. Um, what does what kind of specific challenges are there building something like this as opposed to building something like a commercial center, which I know you've done a lot of, or residential buildings that I know you've done a lot of? What what makes some a, a, this particular project different from a, a building point of view? Um, I think there's I think there's two things, and I think it's less the building as it is the timing. I think trying to build a building right now in the middle of a global pandemic and where we are in the economic cycle makes this more challenging than, than, than I think I've ever, anything we've ever done beforehand. Um, and let me just go through, through, through some of the examples of that. Mm -hmm. When we were originally proposed this uh, proposal, when the real estate agent came to us and asked if we wanted to do a, uh, put a commercial use in this building, we had actually gone far down the path of building condos. We were looking at doing two towers, one 19 stories, one 21 stories. And we had done a pre-consultation with the city. We had done our engineering. We had done our architectural. We had done our site plan. And we were just on the verge of filing for our formal application with the city uh, for approvals when I got the phone call asking if we would consider CMHA. I remember at that time we looked at it and one of my staff even asked and said, why are we doing this? It's We're not going to be able to make any money whatsoever on a commercial use simply because construction costs have gone through the roof. Mm. And just to give an example, you know, five years ago, we were building in about $130 a square foot. And just before the pandemic hit, we were building somewhere north of $450 a square feet, foot. So costs have escalated dramatically just because of the, act, uh, the amount of business activity that was out there. And we're now in a point where if you're building anything other than residential or, you know, cheap, cheap, cheap industrial buildings, there's no way to be profitable. So there's just no business case anymore. And that's why very little is, is being built. Mm. Now, add to that, on top of that, a global pandemic where you've got, first of all, a massive shortage of labor. <laughs> you know, many of the older experienced uh, journeymen have decided to retire because they don't want to be on a construction site and get COVID and then potentially die from it. And many of the younger, lower paid have decided to stay at home and get their, their $2,000 from the federal government. So now all of a sudden we find ourselves with a massive labor shortage. Now, that is industry-wide, which means you've had shutdowns in, in manufacturing of everything from two-by-fours to drywall to copper wire to, to et cetera. And you've seen a massive escalation in, in prices. I mean, we've seen two by fours in some cases go from $4 a two by four to $15. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's assuming that you can even get it. Mm-hmm. So we're finding ourselves in, in a situation where executing on something like this, never mind what the pricing was before the pandemic, but now adding the pandemic on top of that makes it incredibly challenging. And, and we've, we've had this conversation many times over the last year and a half. If this was any other tenant than CMHA or any other project than CMHA, we wouldn't do this. It just doesn't make sense. Right. And I imagine that's going to be a common thing for a lot of, um, I guess, office construction in particular, because I mean, a lot of businesses who may have before the pandemic thinking about opening a new office complex somewhere, maybe rethinking that because who knows how many of their employees are going to be back at a physical office anytime soon. So that that could be years away from normalizing, even from that perspective. You see commercial commercial signs all across the city, right? For for rent everywhere. There's empty buildings right now. Right. Absolutely. Although I will say this, we are finding from our larger multinational tenants, we're not really seeing a lot of change in the space requirements because on one hand, you're absolutely right. You know, we will have less people working in the office at any one given uh, period of time. But what we are also seeing is that large multinationals are changing their offices to give more space to the employees. Right. And so the two of them are, to some extent, are, are, are cancelling each other out. What we're also seeing in, in the real estate market is if you have a good location and good locations are hard to come, you will always have the tenants. We actually ended up doing more leasing during the pandemic to large multinationals than I would say most of the companies out there. And what I understand from CBRE, we actually hit uh, three of the top five positions in terms of leases that we've signed during the pandemic. But again, because of the locations, but again, because it's also large multinationals. Right. And and certainly in our business, Adam, we are going to be an in-person business. Yeah. Uh, We've had to shift to virtual care to some degree. But uh, we cannot wait to get back into the office in September. But then certainly uh, when our brand new building is going to be built, it'll be so joyful to be able to offer that kind of care in an incredible new space. Uh, and, and, and that's what I'm going to say as well, yeah. is you know, because of where we are in the pandemic, and I think the pandemic has, has really opened our eyes in, in, in many ways as to what's really important in, the, in, in this world. And I find that during the pandemic, we, some of us have had time to, you know, to reflect on our lives and reflect on what we were considering was important, you know, before the, the, uh, the, the pandemic mm-hmm. and realize that maybe, you know, all this pursuit for material wealth and maybe the pursuit, you know, for a new car or for a bigger house or, or, or a nicer title on a business card really wasn't that important because mm-hmm. we're actually seeing people get in fact, we're seeing people getting sick, we're seeing people dying. And, you know, I think it touches every one of us. So I think the pandemic on one hand has, has shown us that maybe it's time to, to start focusing on, on other things and what I call the false idols of, mm-hmm. that we were focusing on before the pandemic. And on the other hand, though, too, is that there was a number of people for, who were already struggling, I would say, before the pandemic for whom this is just one more thing. And that has, shall we say, accentuated struggles that they were having beforehand. So when I look at this project, um, I look at this as being a story of how do we get out of the pandemic? How do we right. get back to a normal world? How do we, you know, how do we help the people who have suffered uh, through the pandemic? And I'm not talking medically in the sense of uh, you know getting sick and being in an ICU, but people who have struggled. And the reality is, everyone in my mind has struggled at some point in their life through. Uh, through the pandemic, uh, sorry, uh, with mental health issues through their life. Right. But I mean, I, I even see it myself, you know, we, we've lost our balances during the pandemic and it's hard. It's hard for any one of us to stay sane when we're locked at home and maybe locked at the office. And, and, and that's why as much as we have challenges, as much as we've questioned the validity of doing this over the last two and a half years, there was never a doubt in, in my mind that we were going to break every obstacle or overcome every obstacle and just make this thing work. Right. And this is where I want to say hats off, you know, specifically to, you know, to Helen, who has been a tireless champion of this and a tireless, you know, worker on this, never mind her entire team. Um, Maybe a pain in your ass too, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) 
in a good way. Respect is built. <laughs> well, Helen, Robert raises uh, several good points there, and b- because I, I've I've covered the idea of creating a youth services hub before on on this podcast and on the Politico site, and we we had Kate Reed and Carrie Chassels uh, do an episode. I guess back it was back at the end of 2019 thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no such thing as COVID-19 um, in, in at, at the time or, or there was, but it was like, you know, very slowly, you know, spreading secretly through China and um, getting on yep. planes to other places. So mm-hmm. in the last year, has the idea behind, you know, the Grove and, and this new building um, how, how has it evolved and how has it changed from sort of how it was originally envisioned and, and how much of that is like pandemic, like, like pandemic directed, like as a response to the pandemic itself? Well, to be honest, the need has already always been there. So prior to the pandemic, we were underwater. Uh, we were underwater with the needs, uh, with being able to respond to those needs. And that's across the board, cradle to grave. Um, since the pandemic, it's now a tsunami, right? The mm. water is that much deeper and scarier and more dangerous. Uh, I would say particularly for children and youth. So we've seen phases of the pandemic, you know, the beginning, remember how concerned we were about seniors and all the deaths in long-term care, it was horrible, right? Then it sh- then the concern kind of shifted to adults who had lost jobs and couldn't get their businesses open and they were struggling and you know, really concerned there. And then as the pandemic has gone on and the longer it's gone on, the shift has really been to children and youth. They're Mm -hmm. in school, they're out of school. Mm -hmm. They don't know what the future is going to be. They're away from everything they care about, school, sports, community, their extended family, their grandparents, all the things that bring kids joy are the things that they can't do right now. So Uh, We've really seen long term, the longer this pandemic has gone, the harder it's been for kids. And as adults, we can process all that, even though it's hard, we can process it, we can make sense of it, we can, you know, we have a risk mitigation strategy, we can do what we need to do. As kids, it's really hard. They live in this fear and uncertainty. um, And it's really hard for them to make sense of. So just to give you a little bit of context, Adam and, and Robert heard me say this at the opening, but We've seen a 40% increase in our referrals to kids and youth. So prior to the pandemic, we had 11 kids waiting to see our child psychiatrist. Now there's 170. Mm. Prior to the pandemic, we had 20 kids waiting for counseling and treatment. Now there's 140. We've seen the eating disorders program go from a two month wait to a 15 month wait. Mm. Like it's so we had the need before the needs always been there. It is just incredibly intense now way more than we could have ever imagined. So we need this site, this building, this community, and Robert's incredible generosity more than we've ever needed it in our history. And this is not going to go away quickly. That's the other problem. Before I, I, sorry, Robert, go ahead. And I just like to add one more point to that. You know, every time that Helen says these statistics, I'm always impressed and I'm always shocked at the same time as, as, as these numbers. But then I also think about the fact that there's many people who are suffering under these issues, children and youth that aren't getting the help, that are not being recognized by the system. So when you actually take those numbers, those are the, she's giving the numbers of people who are in the system who are recognized. That we know Uh, about. The real number is probably, you know, a a multitude, uh, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 times more than, than what you're mentioning there. You're absolutely right, Robert. And again, stigma plays a big part of that still. We've come a long way with stigma, but we're still in the shadows of the healthcare system. You know, we would, you know, we'd never tell somebody with cancer to pull up their socks. We still pull, still, still tell people with anxiety and depression, you know, pull up your socks and get out there for a walk. It, you know, stigma is still a thing. So you're absolutely right. It's probably triple the number that we know about. Right. The, the ones who come forward are kind of the canary in the coal mine. They're the because they're they have for whatever reason, um, they have support that allows them to seek out help. They right. don't necessarily have any place they can go um, or they're just, you know, they're so, I, I guess, swallowed by their by their difficulties that it's uh, it, it becomes 
so noticeable that the people in their lives, even if it's just an acquaintance can. So it's, it's like the ones who are suffering in silence. Um, those are the ones that kind of really have to be worried about still. Yes. And those are the folks we need to reach in. Right. Rather than waiting for them to reach out. Right. So that that's one of our challenges for sure. We need eyes everywhere. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, I guess that's part of the benefit of something like this. Right. Helen, is that if I. I mean, I'm, I'm far from being a youth anymore, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a young person and perhaps I come in um, having, you know, perhaps a family difficulty um, with a sibling or a parent or, or what have you. And um, it, it's a building full of people who know the signs, know what That's to right. look for. And, and maybe it's not a thing that I have uh, a, a disagreement with a family member. Maybe it's something that goes much deeper. And so there will there will be people who. There, this is a building and th this is meant to be sound pejorative, but there will be eyes everywhere when somebody comes into this building. You got it. And the other thing is there's a place to hang out safely. There's a foosball table. There's a kitchen that we can make food. And like, there is a place where kids and youth can come and just be. Right. And right. with other youth that are peers that are also supports and there's bridges right to that care in all of those places, formally, informally, it's just a whole network. Right. And I mean, there's some, aside from parks or things, there's, there's not many places where young people can be young people. Like all the yeah. arcades are gone. <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's, right. it's hard to find those spaces. Yeah, it really is. But, but I'm going to make one more point to all of this. Yeah. And you know, for and I and I mentioned this a little bit during my talk at the uh, at, at the groundbook breaking. You know, having been one of those seventeen years old youth that went through some of the same issues that we're trying to deal with with this with the center, one of my realizations was that at the time help was very very much fragmented. If you needed help with housing, you had to go to this place. If you needed help with uh, mental, not with with a therapist or with a support worker, you went to another place. And it was very, very hard to, you know, to get the help because you had to go to probably half a dozen different places to get the support that you needed. And the problems or the issues that we were dealing with, and I'm talking from personal, um, for, for myself right now, and I don't mean to try and talk for anyone else on this is I just found it's, it's daunting. It's, it's overwhelming. It's, it, it's difficult. And what I love about this project is it's all under one roof. I wish we had this when I was 17, it certainly would have made my life a lot easier at that point, but having it together, having it integrated, I think is going to make a massive difference to you know, to people such as myself, you know, when I was going through it, but who are going through it to, to these days. And that's what excites me. And that's what I think is special and unique about this. And, you know, as much as I may not be an expert as, as far as mental health is concerned, but I believe if I understand correctly, this is one of the first times something like this has been attempted or, or, or being tried. You, you, you did raise uh, you, uh, your own sort of personal investment in this, Robert. And I, I do want to kind of dig deeper if, if you'll permit um, just in terms of like your own personal experiences. I mean, what, what, did, what kind of difference, I mean, you are, are obviously a very successful person having perhaps overcome um, the things you were experiencing when you were 17. But I mean, when you think about, as you said, where was this when you were 17, you know, what, what kind of impact would have something like this have had on your life if you could have gone to the Grove and, um, you know, sought out the, the peer support that you needed? Well, a couple of thoughts, uh, you know, come to mind on that. And I think the first thought is what, what I'd mentioned a little bit earlier. I think when we're going through these issues, many of us are in denial mm. uh, at first. We don't even realize that we need the help. Um, it's only to some extent when we've ended up on a very, very destructive path to some extent that, you know, sometimes we're lucky enough to have the lucidity of saying that, you know, we need help, but in most cases it's people around us who tell us and who push us to, you know, to, to try to get the help that we need it. Um, I'm going to give an example. I don't know how many times when I was 17 that I was actively trying to kill myself. 
Mm. Um, I remember my best friend in the middle of the winter coming down on, on a bicycle in snow and trying to stop me from doing something stupid. Um, you know, those were, you know, those were the, um, um, shall we say, some of the, you know, the initial uh, warning signs. Then you get into the addictions issues and the addiction issue in my mind is, and again, I'm talking about personal experience because this is something that's very personal to, to, to everyone who's, who, who's going through these issues. And I certainly don't want to be, you know, this to be interpreted as a generality, generality. Right. But in my mind, personally, I don't think anyone turns around and says, well, Hey, I want to be a drug addict. You know, in many cases, you know, substance abuse is a result of, shall we say, life circumstances, or at least in my case, it was what I was trying to go through that I wasn't able to process, that I wasn't able to deal with, you know, and, and that was a, you know, a logical uh, uh, continuation of, um, you know, of, of the issues beforehand. And, you know, I look back and, you know, people have asked me recently, said, you know, are you comfortable talking about this? And I like mm -hmm. to joke, and it's not really a joke. The reality is I'm able to talk about it today because of many, many years of therapy, of many right. years of professionals, such as the, the people who work over at uh, CMHA, who put their hearts into this day in, day out, who put their souls into their, 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 their clients, their, you know, the people that they're working with, that, you know, I'm, that, that I'm able to talk about it today. But as I also said at, um, at the groundbreaking is if it hadn't been for organizations such as CMHA, I wouldn't be here today. And I know that. Mm. Um, and that's why when this project came up, you know, could we have made substantially more money uh, <laughs> on uh, doing condos? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, it's, it's not about money sometimes in, in this world. And I think the pandemic has shown us that really money isn't the most important thing. Mm -hmm. uh, humanity is, the people are, our community are. And so when this project came up, I was sold. It was, we're building this thing, no matter what the obstacle might be. And don't get me wrong, you know, we've done the groundbreaking, but we still have the hard work in front of us because we are still in a global pandemic and we yeah. still have to build this thing with the labor shortages, with the supply shortages and everything else that we're facing. So it's certainly not going to be easy from here onwards. And, and Helen, once again, Robert hits on something, you know, when he's talking about how when he was young and he was in distress and it would be his friends who would kind of come to his rescue. And it, 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 it makes me think, though, it's not just the ones we're trying to who are experiencing issues that need to help. It's kind of because, you know, when you're young, you don't want to go to your parents. You don't want to go to teachers. You don't want to go to the adults in your life. You think, you know, you're more mature than that. And so it falls onto your peers, you know, other people you're, you go to school with. And so in a sense, it's not just the ones who are suffering um, that this helps. It's their friends who, you know, are, are kind of thrust into kind of dealing with adult concerns without sort of, uh, that available guidance from people yes. like CMHA. Uh, that's exactly right. So I'll, I'll tell you two things uh, to support that, Adam. The first is that we get at least 50% of our calls into here 24 seven from family members or friends, or just someone who is concerned about someone they love next door neighbor, a hockey coach. Mm. They see someone struggling. They've tried to reach out to them. They can't reach them and they are very worried that something bad is going to happen. And they reach out to us to say, what can I do? Can you guys get involved? Uh, and you know, those are incredibly important calls. And as Robert has said, sometimes when you're in it, you don't see it, right? Right. You, you, you protect yourself from your own distress and other people can see it so much more clearly. Um, the second is uh, we recently uh, broke up, a suicide pact amongst uh, a number of youth. Wow. Um, and it was incredibly close to oh. intervening too late. And the only reason we were able to intervene is because someone close to that circle uh, knew and uh, knew that they needed to reach out to an adult. Uh, and that's how we were able to get in there and intervene and make sure that that group of youth stayed safe. That was literally a month ago, um, but a 
you know, one of the most poignant examples of uh, people, you know, being able to put the, 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 the white flag up and say, you know, we need some help over here. And then uh, us being able to intervene. That's, that was my comment earlier that we need eyes everywhere. Um, and then, and then building that bridge. If, if that youth hadn't come forward, um, we would have had an incredibly tragic outcome in, in, in our community. And, and thinking about that too. I mean, now that's kind of a, a kind of a shocking sobering anecdote on a random podcast instead of being like what could have been a national news story. Mm-hmm. But, but it's a shocking uh, antidote of the reality. Yeah. And this incredible national news story is what we need to do to respond to that. Right. Right. It's it, this, this is our call to action. Um, we have a mental health crisis in our community. It's the parallel pandemic. I've been saying it for 16 months and it's going to be even more so. So as the physical health part starts to diminish and we get on top of COVID-19 and, you know, we're, we're doing so well, the vaccination rates are rising and the hospital rates are lowering and, you know, we're getting there slowly, but surely And our public health unit here has done an absolutely amazing job leading that charge for us. As that physical health part decreases, the mental health part will rise. Our doors will open and we're going to see the layers of trauma that have been created by this pandemic. And it's trauma that is underneath a lot of the issues. And, you know, Robert talked about substance abuse. Those are folks that have experienced trauma in their lives, right? Uh, And alcohol is the fastest way to numb those feelings. And before you know it, you are down a slippery slope that you have lost control over, right? So, the Ministry of Health cannot fix this problem. They are funding us. They're funding us across the province. They're funding the entire healthcare system. There is not enough money and not enough funding to address this issue. We have to rely on the incredible kindness and generosity of people like Robert and other uh, corporate donors uh, to help us with this incredible uh, need and tragedy in our in our culture. Uh, obviously, Robert is the the biggest example that there is in terms of that generosity. I, like, you know, Adam, there are no words to describe Robert's generosity. It's just absolutely staggering. But if we don't have people like Robert who work in the corporate world and can help um, help us with this problem in the in the nonprofit sector, we're going to be in much bigger problems. Robert, you kind of alluded to this when you were discussing the project earlier that. Um, the pandemic has sort of changed your view of philanthropy that, you know, you, you kind of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but you, you kind of go big, you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, a little donation here, a little donation here. If you're, if you're going to do something like this, go big, have like the biggest impact you possibly can. And is, is that an, an attitude that I mean, is, I, you know, I can tell that this is a personal sort of, caused you that you feel deeply about you know creating this this project but i mean just in terms of a general sense has the pandemic changed how philanthropic you are (laughs) well i'm I'm actually going to say that no this this isn't because of the pandemic this is something that i've been doing my entire life and i want to tell a little story from from the time i was 17 just to you know just to illustrate this but there was a person who took an interest in me, who helped me out, who essentially got me into therapy. He got me into um, dealing with addictions, who got me my first place to, to live. Um, and thanks to him, I went on to a very, very different path. Mm. Years later, when I had, you know, gotten myself stable, I had gotten a good job, I'd gotten into university, I'd gotten my education. I was living in Montreal at this this moment in time and I wanted to do something to say thank you. And so I went to the SAQ and I bought the most expensive case of wine that I could find because I knew he was a a huge wine lover. Mm -hmm. So I remember driving down to Toronto and giving him this case of wine. And he looked at me and he says, what's this wine for? (laughs) And I said, I wanted to say thank you, because I don't know where I would be today if you hadn't taken 
you know, that, that effort, that interest who had helped me get through, you know, the, the various organizations to get myself, uh, you know, on, on, onto my feet. And I don't know where I would be today. And he looked at me and he said, thank you, but I don't want your wine. Mm. And I said, excuse me. And he says, I don't want your wine. I said, but I want to say thank you. And he said to me, he says, if you want to say thank you, this is not the way to do it. So I asked him, what's the way of doing it? And he says to me, he says, you're going to have to figure that one out yourself. I can't tell you that. <laughs> so I took this, went back into the car and drove back to Montreal and tried to return the wine. And of course, they wouldn't take it back. And so my best friend at the time and I drank the wine. And by the way, it really wasn't that good. So anyone who tells you the expensive wine is good wine, they're lying. But <laughs> let's leave that aside. I think it took me about another six months to, to a year until one morning I was in the shower and I'm always thinking, my mind just doesn't stop. And this thought crossed my mind of, I wonder what he was like when he was 17. Mm. So I called him up and I said, hey, John, I said, what were you like when you were 17? And he said to me, he said, like you. Right. And that's when I understood it. He helped me because of empathy, because he had gone through the exact same situation that I, that I had gone through. He knew what it felt like. And that's the day that I realized that the only way I'm ever going to be able to thank everyone, and it wasn't just him, he was maybe, you know, one of the, the, the key people, but the only way I can ever thank the people who took their time and effort and energy onto me on, on putting me on a different path is by being able to do the same thing that John and everyone else had done for me. And that's why I look at myself as being one of the lucky ones. I look at myself as being one of the privileged ones. And when we talk about the undiagnosed, or should we say the, those that are not getting for help, you know, they're, you know, that, that, that's in my mind who, who I think with this story and I think with, with these podcasts is, you know, is what I would personally like to try and reach because there is a lot more people out there than, yeah. you know, than I think we're, we're necessarily aware of. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give another little anecdote. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, um, one of the frontline workers from CMHA reach out to me and she wrote me and said, just when we were having, just when the donation was announced, we were having a conversation amongst all the, uh, the workers here. And we were wondering if we actually make a difference in people's lives, if we actually are, are able to make a change, if, if we're actually succeeding at, at, at what we're trying to do. And her message touched me to such an extent that I wrote back to her and I said, you are, and don't ever doubt that for a moment. You are making a difference. You may not see it in a year. You may not see it in two years, may not even see it in five years. It may take a decade. It may take two decades before you actually see the impact of, of what you've done. And to some ways, I wish I remembered the name of my, my therapist 35 years ago, because I would love to invite her here. Yeah. I would love to invite her to the opening and say, this is thanks to you. This is for you putting your heart into this, your soul into this for, for taking an interest. Um, and, and, and let me say this, I have friends who, who do this on a day in and day out, and it's not an easy job. They have people who yell at them, who scream at them, who shout at them, who threaten them to, you know, etc. And yet they get up day in and day out. And, you know, very often for her, for not in, not incredible amounts of pay, or certainly not not uh, enough money for for what you know what they have to go through on on a daily basis, but they do this day in and day out, and that's why I keep believing is you know they are the heroes, and so for me, the the reason that I'm doing this is to enable the people that do this day in day out, but mm -hmm. do the hard work. I do the easy part. Right. It, it's kind of weird that you know, we talk about stigma, people trying to struggle and recognize that they need the help. But I mean, there's also kind of a bit of that on the back end too, where you know, people get better, but we don't kind of stop and appreciate the people who, who lifted us up and, 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 and helped us get better. That uh, there's kind of a, a reverse stigma there too. Uh, we, we don't want to kind of look backwards. We, 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 we come through the fog and uh, we don't want to look back at, where we came from it's it's all forward looking too well i'm, I'm, I'm gonna give an anecdote on that actually okay <laughs> um i'm sorry it's uh 
I've got lots of these as Helen. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something that I realized a long time ago, and that's like, you know, what is success? Mm -hmm. And in my mind, success is 25% hard work. Mm. Like no matter what we do, we have to work hard, whether it's on ourselves as a person, whether it's on our careers, whether it's on our education, whether it's, it's, it's whatever. But 20% is taking a risk and we have to take a risk where, you know, which means getting out of our comfort zone. And when you're the, the kid on the street, you have to take a risk and try something else to get off of the street. Um, and in, and even if it's starting a business, you're, you're still taking a risk. But then that leaves 55% left over. So what is that 55%? And it's luck. Right. And the reality is there's people who try just as hard and there's people who take just as many risks, but who don't necessarily get the luck. So I think we always have to remember that, you know, if we are where we are, where, yes, we did the work. Yes, we took the risks. But yes, we also had a tremendous amount of luck. That doesn't make us better. That doesn't make us, you know, a, a superior human being, which, which some people uh, tend to think and, and, and take it to their heads. And I think that if you happen to be lucky, then you also have a responsibility uh, to help those that are less fortunate, that are struggling, that are trying to get to, you know, to, to where we are. And that's why when I think about, you know, my own journey or my own voyage and think, you know, if I can come back as a 17 year old that was living on the streets, that was using drugs, that was actively trying to, to kill themselves at the time. And 35 years later, I can come back and, you know, and give this back to all the heroes that helped me to, to be who I am and, you know, where I am today. To me, there's, there's three messages here. Message number one is if I can do it, so can other people if they have the supports and that's what you know organizations such as CMHA do every single day that's what they focus on is giving the support giving the help and you know the second part um, um, for me is as much as people at CMHA put their hearts and souls into this if they don't have the infrastructure if they don't have the support they're limited to you know to to what they can do so that's why I look at this as being able to enable them to do what they do you know day in and day out and as a third kind of note you know somebody pointed out to me and said well this is the largest donation in 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 mental health in in Canada which Still kind of blows me away, to be honest. <laughs> but I have this comment out there and saying, you know, there's a lot of people that are much, much wealthier than I am. And I challenge them to surpass this. And I challenge them to do the exact same thing, but surpass it and make somebody else the person who did the biggest donation. And I hope this just sets a new yardstick. You could have gone to space, Robert, is all I'll say about that. Um <laughs> no desire to go to space. <laughs> I hear you. Look, at the, look at the lasting impact Robert's donation will have. Right. You know, that that is the incredible thing. And I and I really hope uh, that Robert's example does inspire other people in our community, not only Guelph Wellington, but across Canada, uh, to really um you know, rise above and and do the right thing to help people that need it the most, people that are suffering in silence, right? This, this is going specifically, this investment that Robert is making is going specifically to children and youth. We know that the earlier we intervene and the more comprehensively we intervene, their entire life trajectory can get changed because of that intervention. Mm-hmm. That is an enormous gift, right? An enormous gift. And I'm an and I'm an example of that. Right. Yeah. Helen, perhaps to wrap up, I, I'm going to direct a kind of like big, broad philosophical question to you is like you, you've kind of alluded to that there's like kind of this mental health surge coming as soon as kind of we get the, the physical issues of giving getting everyone vaccinated. Um, once kind of people are out amongst the public again, reconnecting, um, understanding what you know a year and a half in lock in lockdown looks like 
is this going to be like the time where we kind of incor- formally incorporate mental health into like the general healthcare picture? Because like right now they're, they're kind of like two separate entities. We have healthcare, which is like, you know, body and, you know, but then we have mental health, which is mind, but like, can you ever have a sound body if you don't have a sound mind? And are we doing a disservice, keeping those still keeping those two things apart? Yeah. Uh, great question, Adam. Um, so first thing is, the surge is here. Um, interesting, they, you know, they talk about the, the phases of COVID, right? And the, the waves. Uh, and we are still in our first wave in mental mm-hmm. health. So our first wave happened April of 2020. After the lockdown hit, and we realized this was not going to be a two week thing. And then it was like, holy crap, what's happening? So that's when we saw our volumes in here 24-7 go from 4,000 calls a month to 6,500 calls a month. We have not changed the volume since then. That's our new normal. So I always tell people we are in the first wave in terms of our mental health pandemic because waves mean that there are dips. We haven't seen a dip, not once. We expect that there will even be a further surge because as people come out of their homes, And as we're seeing new themes and new trends all the time, I'll tell you one that we're just seeing now uh, is the conflict in families about vaccinations, right? We've got everybody in the family vaccinated except one person. Right. That person is now an outcast. They're cutting them off. There's this conflict that ensues. We're getting calls after calls after calls for families in distress, and, and it's creating real breakdowns. Uh, we're seeing it also in the business environment as well, right? So wait till schools come back. Like it's it's just going to be the next evolution of things. This is an, a constantly evolving thing, but the mental health piece is absolutely massive. So it's there. Uh, we're doing the best we can to address it. But I want to be clear, we do not, we did not have the resources for mental health before the pandemic. We certainly don't have them now. Um, thank God for people like Robert, because at least on the children and youth side, we can take the resources that we were going to be using to lease that building, our new building, which we had entered into a 20 year lease with Robert. And we can now plow that, uh, those resources back into frontline care um, with the, uh, because of Robert's generosity, right? We need that generosity in other parts of our services as well. Adults, seniors, you name it. We are in really big trouble when it comes to mental health uh, and the, the volumes and the needs that are there. We're not even close to touching the need. And again, that's the known need. Right. Never mind the folks that, that we know haven't reached out. So we are very much part of the healthcare system. We are still in the shadows of the healthcare system, but I will say, Adam, that I feel quite hopeful because for the first time since I've been in this field, which has been 21 years here at this agency, mental health is the conversation. It is being talked about. It is being acknowledged. People are sharing. People are talking about it. We have Robert going public courageously with his story and his donation. This is what's going to change the game for us, because as you have rightly pointed out, mental health is health. Mm-hmm. There is no separation between physical health, mental health. It's all one. So I feel hopeful about where we're going, probably more hopeful than I've ever been. But we have to match that hope with the actual resources uh, to be able to meet the needs of folks out there who continue to suffer and struggle, some of them in silence and some of them with us on the waiting lists. Right now, by the way, as of this morning, 3,824 people waiting for care in Guelph and Waterloo Region. 3,824 people waiting for care in mental health and addictions. Can you imagine if 3,824 people were waiting for cancer care? There would be an outcry. There is not an outcry in mental health and addictions. And that's, again, uh, evidence of the fact that the, we still live in the shadows and we're still dogged by stigma, right? right. Those 3,824 people deserve their care uh, very much like they deserve cancer care. It's the same thing. And not to take away from people with cancer, they deserve care too. <laughs> I was just doing the the math in my head. That would be about one out of 
250 people in Guelph in the Tri-Cities. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that kind of really puts a button on it. Yeah. And again, those are the people that have come forward, right? Yeah. But not necessarily the people that we know need it. Right. Well, that is a profound way to leave the podcast. But I mean, just again, it's uh, it was great to have the two of you on. And, uh, you know, and it, it's great to see this project move forward. And um, uh, I think we all look forward to being at the ribbon cutting in 2023, hopefully unmasked. But we'll see how that goes. Anyway, <laughs> Helen Fishburne and Robert Eilers, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Adam. Really appreciate it. And once again, that was Helen Fishburne and Robert Eilers to learn more about the Grove and Integrated Youth Wellness Hubs in Ontario and our region. You can go to thegrovehubs.ca. And to learn more about mental health services in our area, go to CMHA Waterloo Wellington at their website, cmhawww.ca. And if you'd like to learn more about what the Vestera Group of Companies does, you can visit their website at Vestera Property Management, all one word, dot com. That's Vestera Property Management dot com. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU at the University Center on the University of Guelph campus. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast on Wednesday from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can download it from Podbean at guelphpoliticast.podbean.com. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can get in touch with me personally at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. You can also find me through Twitter at Adam A. Donaldson or at Guelph Politico. You can find Guelph Politico on Facebook at facebook.com slash politicoguelph. And if you'd like to help build a locally sourced independent media outlet in the city of Guelph, please consider donating to Guelph Politico. And you can find it how at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. I don't necessarily need $50 million, but uh, I will take that check if anyone's offering it. Anyway. For all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you this time next week. And until then, we will see you next time.